you'll join with me in today's scripture reading. We'll be reading from 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 through 12. And in the Pew Bibles, this is page 257. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. I absolutely love this book of the Bible. It's one of my favorites. The, this city of David that is spoken about here, um, for the past several decades, it just got recently discovered uh, relatively in archaeological standards. And so before the discovery, people would always question, like, oh, is the Bible really true? There's no city of David. We've looked all over Jerusalem. It's nowhere to be found. And they found it. And so a lot of it's been excavated, and they're continuing to excavate it. And it's just an absolutely cool thing. And you're going to find out as to why this was so hard to find um, for archaeologists as we get into this study, but it's, it's just one of those fascinating things for me, and, and I just kind of Bible nerd out on it. We purchased this campus, this building, the one across the street, the parking lot, several years ago, and we knew there was a lot that needed repair, fixing, and cleaning up, and, and so even though we, we closed on the deal and you know, we, we closed escrow. We just knew that there was so much more to be done with roofing and plumbing and electrical and the, the numerous issues you get from owning a building that's almost 100 years old because this was built in 1926, I think, or 29, one of those years. So many years have been put into the property and, and um, we still have a lot of work to do. Like, it's still a ton of work to do. I bring this up. Um, I'm not trying to raise money. I bring this up because this is David's situation. This is what David's running into. Um, but if you want to give money, that's fine too. Um, well, last week we looked at verses 1 through 5. And so David was recognized as the king of Israel. From all 12 tribes, everyone recognized him. So the deal is done, right? Escrow papers are through. He got the mortgage. Like everything's done. There's a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. There's still so much that needs repairing and fixing and cleaning up. And so this is what is the rest of chapter 5 here. When we're reading chapter 5, something to keep in mind is it's not all in chronological order uh, as one would expect when you're reading something, especially like a narrative. So when you're reading this, that's really important to keep in mind because it's not in chronological order. 
If you want something to be put in chronological order for you, it's one of my favorite Bibles. It's the chronological Bible. And you can read through that chronologically, and it'll place everything for you chronologically. But in this chapter, it's not chronological. So for example, if you look at verses 11 and 12, um, Hiram, king of Tyre, most likely sent those messengers to David and those cedar trees and, and the carpenters and masons who built the house of David, later in David's reign because it wasn't until later in David's reign that the king of Tyre, Hiram, and King David overlap each other as kings. It doesn't happen earlier on. So, so chronologically, it doesn't make sense, right, that this happens where it's placed. So, so not everything in the Bible is sequential. Now, some Bible scholars agree that that verses 17 through 25 happened before verses 6 through 10. Now, why is this? Because if you're looking at it from the standpoint of the Philistines, you, you hear about David being king of Israel, verses 17 through 25. You're probably not going to just sit and wait around for David to overtake Jerusalem. You're probably going to oppose David right away and not delay to allow him to take Jerusalem. And it's probably... It's possible that verses 17 through 25 happen before verses 6 through 10. So again, just something to keep in mind when you're reading the Bible. It's not a contradiction. It's not, it's not like, well, how, this didn't happen first. That, that doesn't make sense. It's the style of writing that they don't necessarily write in a chronological order. And if you want chronological order, pick up a chronological Bible. It's great. It even gives you the dates. You can read it all in 365 days in one year. You can finish it all. It's just uh, something I like to do. So unless the scripture says that this event happened after this event, it's not necessarily in chronological order. It's not necessarily sequential. Now, sometimes events are put in topical order. So where we're given these sections as to how David repaired the kingdom. And so it's just like how I would describe fixing up this church. If you asked me to put it in chronological order, it would take me a lot of work to do that, but I could pull up all the receipts and then figure out, okay, I'm going to do all this stuff for you guys to put it in chronological order as to what you want me to do. It is much easier for me to give you a topical order. Yeah, we did the roof, and we did the electrical, and we did the flooring, and we did the painting, and I don't necessarily remember in which order it is. I can figure it out. I have all the records for it. But if you were just to come ask me, I'd I just kind of tell you topically. I couldn't tell you chronologically. So I'd talk about these sections and these topics of the building separately. And so this is similar to what's happening here in 2 Samuel 5. This author is deciding, I'm going to tell this story topically, not chronologically. So we won't be looking at this chronologically. We'll look at this in sections. And so in verses 6 through 10, we're going to see how insignificant this city the Jebusites occupied, held, was, which is why it took archaeologists so long to find the city of David. Now, what we'll read as Zion is what we're talking about here that the Jebusites held. In verses 6 through 8, David's strategy was to overtake this Jebusite stronghold in Jerusalem, and this strategy is laid out for us in verse 8. Verse 8. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. He's kind of making fun of them, calling him lame and blind, and who are hated by David's soul. So the Jebusites were really, really 
confident even to the point of arrogance and pride about this stronghold that they were saying, you know, even our people that can't see and even people that can't like wield a spear or a shield or a sword, they can even hold off David's military. Well, David's strategy here was to, to go up to the water chef to conquer this stronghold because any stronghold needs a water supply, right? Every stronghold needs a way to keep alive. And so that's a weak point that David's army is going to take advantage of. Now, once he took it over, he renamed it the city of David. And this is a very, very smart move by David to conquer this stronghold of the Jebusites in Jerusalem and then make this the base in Jerusalem. Why? Well, strategically, if he were to keep his capital in Hebron, then all those northern tribes would be like, why are you staying there? You're king of us too. You're showing them some favoritism. And then they'd wonder if, you know, like, so is he always going to be loyal to, to Judah and he's not really with us? And so if David moves his capital to the northern tribes, the people of Judah are like, hey, we were the ones with you first. We're, we were the ones loyal to you. We were the one who showed you allegiance as king and you're going to up and go up there. So David's kind of caught in this pickle, because if I stay in Hebron, these guys in the north aren't going like to like it. If I move to the north, these guys in Hebron aren't going to like it. What am I going to do? Oy vey. So he takes over the stronghold of the Jebusites. It's, it's, it's a brilliant move, because no one can complain, right? It's like, we didn't have this stronghold before, and you're gonna, I'm going to give you the history of the Jebusites to show you how important and how, how meaningful taking over this place is. But now the north and the south, they can't complain. And David's bringing them together to take over this stronghold that they haven't been able to take over for centuries. It becomes the city of David. And there's no infighting between the north and south showing favoritism with them. This is the capital. It's something we've been wanting for centuries, for generations. We did it together. Yay. Right? Like this, we're done. Verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now, this is the very first mention of Zion in the entire Bible. Now, originally, according to verse 7, Zion is in reference to this 11 acres of land on this kind of crescent moon-shaped southeastern hill south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is the original Zion in verse 7. This is what David originally conquered as Zion. And people have made Zion to be much larger than this hill. But this is what it is. Just this 11-acre hill. So why was the city of David so difficult to find for these archaeologists? Because the way that people did things is they didn't tear things down. They just built on top of each other. Right? They didn't have time to like, take all the stones away. So it's, it was several layers deep in Jerusalem they didn't know how, when you're an archaeologist, you just kind of figure out which one's the most important for us to dig, and then we're going to stop here. Even though there's stuff that can still be below it, they just kind of stop and say, like, this is what we really want to investigate. This is what we want to preserve. And so with City of David, it's only 11 acres. It's this little hill. So excavators were, they stopped. Like, this is what we want to see. Until someone says, like, you know what? I think the City of David is a little deeper. On this little hill? Yes. And so that's why. 11 acres, that's why. Take a look at Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. This is a very, very 
important promise from God. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, 11 acres, my holy hill. That God has placed his Davidic line, this promise of kings, including Messiah Jesus, on this little hill. Just boop. That hill. Now, it doesn't matter what comes against this kingship, that no matter what rebellion, rejection, revolution, no matter what, God has set his king on that tiny 11-acre hill. That's where this anointed king is going to come. He's going to rule from the world. Isaiah 24 speaks of the judgment on earth. And at the end of the chapter, what does verse 23, what, what happens? Isaiah 24, 23. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion, little hill, and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. That's what's going to happen in this little hill, 11 acres. Now, we tend to dismiss things that appear insignificant, like that little hill. And we tend to make judgments on people and things based off of these first impressions that we get of them or of the thing. And here is something about God that we all need to understand, and it runs throughout the entire Bible. God loves to give insignificant first impressions. He loves it. I don't know why, but he loves it. Announcing Jesus, first to shepherds. Announcing Jesus' resurrection, first to Mary Magdalene. Both people where their testimonies aren't allowed in legal court. He loves doing that. I don't know why, but he loves it. You can ask him. I don't know why God just delights in beginning with what is unimpressive, what is unimposing, like this little tiny 11 acres of land, this little hill. It is not a holy mountain, Mount Everest. We will be found in Mount Everest, the tallest. It is not. Beep. You can go there today and you can walk this whole thing in like 10 minutes. It's nothing huge. It's not, it's not a Mount Everest. It's not a K2. It is just little small hill. And God seems to prefer starting with what is just absolutely, incredibly deficient. Small, little. He enjoys starting from nothing. He loves it. And as one of my um, life coaches, I, I love her dearly. Her name is Carol Johnston. She has this saying, God is such a show off. And I kind of agree. Because like, he doesn't need anyone's help. He doesn't need a lead or a hand up. He doesn't need any of that stuff. And it's so important for us to remember that this, this thing about God, that he starts small and with the insignificant, because there will be times when we wonder about the gospel and what it's doing in our communities. But you have to remember how small the gospel started out in this little ho-dunk town back in Israel from these 12 guys all uneducated except for one. And that's kind of where it started. 
And we, when we wonder about what's going on in our world and, and where is God in all of that's going on and, and there's so much injustice and that injustice seems to be winning and nothing seems to be happening to the people who seem to be getting away with all of the things that they're getting away with, that the culture is moving further from God and what's going to happen to our next generation of, of people, of, of Christians, of followers. So many discouraging things that are just happening all around us. And it's times like that, that that we need to be reminded of what God will do with the tiny, the unimpressive, just like Zion. Because this is how God tends to do things. That's how God starts. And at the beginning of David's kingdom, where the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to become from this Davidic line, it began on this little hill that promise and this is a promise from God it will certainly come to pass and there will be opposition but it will pass take a look at verse 6 and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites the inhabitants of the land who said to David you will not come in here but the blind and the lame will ward you off thinking David cannot come in here now Jebusites this is important these guys developed this arrogance, this pride about them, about their stronghold, and they thought nothing can penetrate our fortress because it hasn't happened since the time of Abram. We've held off these Israelites forever, and they've never been able to penetrate our fortress. No one's been able to overtake this fortress. We have these 10 feet thick walls like how are they going to break through that there's no way these guys are going to get through this but so often that's our downfall isn't it our pride our arrogance thinking like and nothing's gonna nothing's gonna overtake us like look at us we're awesome now who are the Jebusites Jebusites were pagans who lived in Jerusalem and they stayed in Jerusalem even after Israel conquered the land. So Israel came into the land, led by Joshua. They conquered the land, but they couldn't take this 11 acres of a stronghold. You move into the time of the judges, and throughout all of that time, nothing is working. They can't get the Jebusites out. The Jebusites are remaining in Jerusalem, in that fortress. They cannot be driven out. Joshua chapter 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. That's Joshua's day. And so the tribe of Judah could not drive them out. And then there's this attempt in Judges chapter 1, verse 8, to drive the Jebusites out. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. But not this stronghold, not Mount Zion, not this 11 acres. They capture the rest of the city, they burn the rest of the city, but they can't overtake this stronghold, not until 2 Samuel chapter 5, that the Jebusites were still there in their stronghold. Now skip down to verse 21 of Judges 1. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day, time of the judges. 
So the tribe of Benjamin tried driving the Jebusites out. They can't do it. The Jebusites were inhabitants of the land before Joshua, before Judah, before Benjamin. And they haven't been driven out by Israel, Israel in all those generations. They cannot get these people out. Why does this even matter? You've got to look back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Mosquito Bites, all the ites, all those ites, all these ites are right here, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, last one, and the Jebusites. The last one is the Jebusites. Why does this matter? It matters because God made a covenant with Abram. And they're still there. 2 Samuel 5, they're still there. Joshua didn't drive them out. Judah didn't drive them out. Benjamin didn't drive them out. Are you sure this promise is true? Are you sure? This is the thing we have to remember about God. When he makes a promise, it is certain. And it happens in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It's this covenant promise God made to Abram. But here's the thing. When was that promise made? Over 800 years before. Over 800 years have passed until this promise comes true. Now something very important to keep in mind about God's promises there is no expiration date. He makes the promise. It's going to happen. You just don't know when. But it's going to happen. There's no expiration date on God's promises. God fulfilled his covenant promise to Abraham 800 years later through David's attack through this little water shaft on this 11 acres in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And it took some time took some time to fulfill this promise, but God's promises, they don't have an expiration date. You can count on them. You know that they're going to happen. And God is faithful to his promises. And here's an example of it. Right here. Promises in Genesis chapter 15. Over 800 years later, 2 Samuel chapter 5, it's fulfilled. God fulfills it. There's just no expiration date. It's the same thing with John chapter 14, starting in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's a promise over 2,000 years ago. Still hasn't been fulfilled yet. But it is certain. It was made. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So over 2,000 years ago. But the thing with 2 Samuel chapter 5 is that it's showing us that no matter how old those promises are, they are going to be certain to be fulfilled no matter how long it takes because there is no expiration date on God's promises. God will prove faithful just as he did with the Jebusites in Genesis chapter 15 
Now let's look at 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel 5. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Again, not in chronological order, right? Because this most likely happened later in David's reign when Hiram's kingship in Tyre kind of overlaps with David's reign in Israel. So it's later. But here we have this acknowledgement of Hiram who is... A, a foreign country, a, a foreign ruler, that David, you are the king of Israel. Now, Hiram is this pagan king up into the northwest, and it's, it's just a small picture of what's to come with Jesus. Take a look at Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And so this is just like a mini picture with Hiram and David from the worlds when Jesus Christ returns and how they are going to see Christ. And here we have Hiram sending these cedar trees to David from Tyre, which is about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. And these cedar trees are from Lebanon, what we see as Lebanon today. And, and, and they, they were a very, very prized wood to work with. I mean, some of these trees... Are, are thousands of years old, like over 3,000 years old, and they grow over 130 feet tall. So you can imagine how prized they were in order to use this type of timber to build one's palace, right? Like you want, you want to show majesty. You want to show impressiveness. Give me those trees. I, I want 130-foot trees for my palace or for the God you worship. And so for your temple or for your places of worship, people around the Near East prize this type of timber so that they can show off. Not to mention they have a pleasant aroma, right? You use cedar planks for your salmon, you know, it smells good. Anyway, they're beautiful. It's a high-quality wood that's beautiful for this stuff. And then if you were to read ancient history, whether it's the Mesopotamians or the Egyptians or the Assyrians, they praise this wood even back to 4000 BC. People love this stuff. And so Hiram didn't just send the trees, though. He sends people who work with these trees. He sends masons. He sends carpenters. He sends people who knew how to work with this wood the best. And so what did David gather from this? Take a look at verse 12, because he's not saying, you know what, I, I'm a pretty awesome king. I, I deserve 130-foot palaces. Like I, I'm pretty great. I'm the one that took over um, Zion, guys. You know, the, the stuff that um, couldn't be taken over from, like, Joshua or, or Judah or Benjamin. Like, I did it, but those guys couldn't do it. He doesn't do any of that. He acknowledges that God established him over Israel. That this was confirmation for David that God exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. And David was king of Israel for the sake of the people of Israel. And unfortunately, not all kings, not all rulers look at their positions of power like this. Not all those in power look to benefit the people. They look to benefit themselves. They look to get reelected. They look to stay in power. They have all these various reasons, but David saw it this way, and it's the way God designed it to be, and this is exactly how Jesus is. Take a look at Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this directive is the same for us. We are here for the benefit of other people. We're not placed above other people, but we are among the people for their benefit. And how do we benefit other people? And we we just do what we can with what we have for those that are before us. And we don't have to have these church-wide initiatives to do certain things. We don't need more committees. We don't need more ministries. We simply need people to serve the people who are right in front of them. Because we have plenty of needs even just in this sanctuary. And even in, within our small groups, there are only a couple right now and hopefully there are more to come. But if you attend that small group, there are plenty of people within that small group who you can invest your life into. And there's plenty of ways to serve those people. All you have to do is, is talk to them and, and you're, go, you're going to find out so many ways to serve those people. That there are so many concerns and hurts and pain and suffering amongst just the people that are sitting right next to you right now. And at a minimum, the way that you can serve is you can pray. Just that intercessory prayer for one another, that that you can engage in prayer for one one another, praying for the needs that you have, those spiritual needs, and praying for the, the pain you're going through, the suffering and the fear and the grief that you are going through for the benefit of others. Now, we aren't going to look at verses 13 through 16 because we covered a passage similar to that in 2 Samuel chapter 3. And you can go back and listen to that. It's archived, if you like, so you can listen to that. So we're going to skip down to verses 17 through 25. And in this section, 17 through 25, the Philistines are threatened by David ruling all of Israel. And he wasn't much of a threat when he just ruled Judah. But now that he has... All of Israel, this is a different story now. So let's take a look at verses 17 and 18. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So the Philistines, they come from the west. And they come from the west to the valley of Rephaim, and this is a strategic point for them, and they're there to defeat David. This valley runs east to west, and and it's about a mile south of Jerusalem, and it's a strategic point, and it's a strategic move by the Philistines because they're spread out through this valley, and it And by spreading out through this valley, this valley cuts off the support that they would have between the northern and the southern tribes in in David's kingdom. So they are purposely situating themselves there to divide this kingdom up. And so David hears of this. He goes to the stronghold. We don't necessarily know which stronghold it is because there are strongholds throughout the kingdom. But David seeks God. Notice this. David is giving us an example of what we are to do in these times of trouble, in these times of questioning, that we are to inquire of God. Verse 19, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Now David probably doesn't do this alone. He most likely seeks God by recruiting people around him to inquire of God together. 
and one of those people was most likely the high priest Abiathar. And just like he did in 1 Samuel chapter 23, he did the same thing there. And so you'll notice David just doesn't inquire of the Lord once, but he does it again in verse 23. And when David inquired of the Lord, he does this again. So once in 19, once in 23. And so David leans on God continually for guidance, and you'll notice that God is, is very versatile in the way that he guides David. Because you look at the first time he responded to David in the first prayer, and then following that in, in the second part of 19. Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Now this second time he prayed to God and he inquired of God, it's a different answer. He gets a different response. Take a look at the latter part of verse 23. He said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. This is interesting. This is fascinating because it's the same place. It's the Valley of Rephaim. It's the same strategic place where they're trying to cut off north from south. It's similar circumstances. But then it's a different response from God. It's a very similar situation. Same place, similar circumstances. And you know what? The way that we usually do things, if it worked the first time, it's probably going to work the second time. Do it the same way. Not so with God. Not so with God. See, God is not locked into the situation, the circumstance, the event. He doesn't necessarily have to have the same solution. He's God. And he has many different approaches to the same issues that you and I face. And that, you know, sometimes you and I think like, oh, this is my only way out. And then God like, no, here, do this one. I mean, hasn't that happened to you before? Where it's like, oh man, there's just no way I'm going to be able to get out of this. And he just opens it. I, I remember, you know, when I was contemplating moving up here, um, I, was, uh, I bought an engagement ring for a girl that I was dating for four and a half years. She lived in the Bay Area. I was in Southern California. I was providing for my family financially. I had to move back in with my dad, otherwise he would be homeless. And here I am, I'm just praying to God, like, God, how is this girl going to marry me if I'm bunking with my dad in, in this house? Like, we're in bunk beds. I'm, I'm literally on the bottom bunk, and my dad's on the top bunk in this one-bedroom apartment. Like, how is this going to work? And I was like, I, I, I have no idea. And she, she, she's, she's up there and down here. Like, what are we going to do? I'm preparing for ministry. I was in pastoral school. I was like, God, what do you want me to do with with ministry, because I, I feel called to ministry, but I don't even know what I'm going to do. I'm just working this job that I'm not that excited about. And so, like, what's, what's going to happen? How are you going to get me out of this? This is weird. And it was bizarre because I got a promotion, a huge one, that moved me to the Bay Area, that helped me provide for my parents still. And I got here and I got in front of the girl, and God was like, You're not marrying her. Okay. So I'm trying to figure out, like, how am I going to tell this girl of four and a half years that we're going to break up? And so I tell her, I was like, you know, I, I, God is just leading me to, to break off us dating. And a big old smile comes across her face. I'm like, Man, she's either really a sicko or like, what's going on here? Like, I thought she'd like burst in tears or like, am I getting played here? Like, what's going on? She was like, God's been telling me like the same thing for like months. I just didn't know how to talk to you about it. So that's what happened. 
And so all these things that I'm praying about, like, how am I going to do this and that and this and that? And then God just was like, one move, it's done. Come on, kid, like, relax. Like, we, we got this. But that's so God. Like, he just moves things like this. Verse 24 and 25, And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Oh, yeah, and I forgot. I, I, I helped plant region, the, the ministry thing. That, yeah, that, that, that's that, that part too. That was answered also. Sometimes we think we have God all figured out. God's going to do this. God's going to do that. I, I know God. He's going to do this. But it's not true because God is God and we are not. God is going to do what he's going to do and it's for your benefit. We think that God just does the same things over and over again to guide us out of our troubles. Like, oh, God did this last time. He's going to do that this time too. No, no, not necessarily. This is something very predictable about God, and this is something that you can count on, is that he is very consistent with his character. That never changes. God is very consistent with his character. But God is very creative in his ways and his methods. Those aren't the same. Right? And sometimes we think we can predict God, and, and sometimes you can in terms of his character, for sure. In terms of his promises, for sure. But you know, in his ways and his methods, we all came to Jesus in different ways, right? None of our stories are exactly the same. We all have different stories. And we don't know how God leads people to himself, but here's something about God. He's never boring. Never boring. He's like very interesting. He's a very fascinating person. He just never works things the same way. It's, it's incredible how varied he can be with essentially the same set of circumstances, right? People suffering, people in pain, people um, grieving, people fearful. And yet he works that stuff out. So when you're in your prayers and in your inquiries with God, we can predict what God will say in accordance to his character, but you don't know the way that he's going to do it. You don't know his methods that he's going to bring things about. And God's character is that he keeps his promises, that there is no expiration date on them. He keeps his promises. He who has began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You can guarantee that. He keeps them. So stay faithful. It might not even be within your generation. It might be 800 years later. It might be 2,000 years later. But God keeps his promises. And he does wonderful things out of the most insignificant people. That's how it's always happened. And so if you are small, if you feel insignificant, if you feel unimportant, if you feel weak, you're perfect. You are perfect for God's handiwork. He loves to show off in you. He loves to glorify himself in you. The weakest of the weak. And for those who are proud and for those who are arrogant and very self-confident, be careful. It might not be now in that your downfall is now, but 
You are at risk of being a Jebusite, and it's coming if you don't humble yourself before the Lord. See, God delights in bringing about greatness through weakness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your word. And thank you for just showing us those deep truths and those deep lessons within them. And and we ask, Lord, that, that we would hold on to them, that we would not lose heart when it just seems that evil and darkness, those things that are so negative around us are winning. But your promises never expire. And so, Lord, I ask for an increase of faith within our own church that we are looking out for one another in terms of benefiting one another. And, and we have many faults. We, we have many mistakes that we're going to make along the way. And yet you are so creative in how you work those things out, even though in your character you do want us to forgive one another, you do want us to reconcile, you do want us to carry each other's burdens together. And as we do these things imperfectly, we know that you are perfect and that you are the one that we are looking to honor and to glorify in our weakness. We absolutely don't have everything figured out. And we're not too proud to confess that, Lord, and we acknowledge that, we recognize that, that we need you. And so we pray, Lord, for that grace to be very present within our community and for us to lift one another up in your name. Amen. Um, if you have your communion elements, let's take those out and have communion with each other. And for those of you who are wanting, needing prayer, as we spoke about intercessory prayer and David's inquiries of the Lord about the Philistines, Mike is in the left front pew. He'd be honored to pray with you. Um, so you can head up to Mike and, and he'd love to pray with you. If you don't have these communion elements, just put up your hand and we can get that to you. And if you do, uh, wonderful. We can get started here at this cracker symbolizing the broken body of Christ for us. And we take this every week here in remembrance as we are told to do this regularly in remembrance of Jesus Christ and his return. Let's take this together. And the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us, cleansing us of our sins, and we await his return, even though it's 2,000 years later in this promise. Let's take this together. Lord Jesus, your return is certain. We ask that we remain faithful as we wait, that we equip these next generations after us, not knowing when your return will be, but your patience for us to see all that, all people to be saved is, is such so long-suffering and gracious, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.